0: You tune into Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service Full Service Full Service
1: Full Service Radio. From Full Service Radio, this is Bad Feminist Making Films. Podcast presented by Reza and Ethnocene Collectives. We're your hosts, Emily Hong
2: and Maggie Lemire.
1: And we'd like to welcome you back to the podcast, a show where we talk to bad feminist filmmakers who are confronting and changing the film industry through intersectional and decolonial practice.
2: So today we're super excited. We're gonna do a deep dive into the film Mixed. Uh, this is a film directed by Lena Jaiswal and Katie Boram Chatu. Uh, 50 years after the landmark Loving uh, versus Virginia U.S. Supreme Court case um, ended in the legal persecution of interracial marriage in America, two mothers, one brown and one white, set off on a journey to explore what it means to be a biracial child living in a mixed race family in so called post racial America.
1: And there were air quotes. Yes, they <laughs> were all in quotes. the studio. <laughs> if only they could see. <laughs> um, all right, so, we're super excited today to have our guest, one of the directors, Lena Jaswal, who's a documentary filmmaker, award winning photographer, and a professor in the School of Communication at American University in Washington, D.C. Um, before we bring Lena onto the show, um, we thought we'd start out, you know, as we usually do, just chatting a little bit about why we decided to, to focus on the show, to do a deep dive into this film, Mixed.
2: Yeah, so Emily, why Why did you, you brought this one forward, um, which I am so grateful for, but why did it,
1: this topic um, appeal to you? Yeah, so I met uh, Lena, it seems like a while ago, but I guess it wasn't that long ago, right? Earlier Probably this year? Probably a couple months ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, um, but, um, and I was super excited um, when I heard about uh, Lena's project, um, Mixed, because you know, as a as a multiracial uh, person myself, I you know we we tend to sort of look for representations of ourselves in media, which is pretty normal, especially when we don't see them. And I think um, hearing about the film, I was really um, it piqued my interest. I wanted to know um, what is it, what what might this film, what might be the approach to this film, uh, especially coming from uh, two directors who. Are mothers of mixed race children and what might th- that approach look like and how might that shape the film. Um, and, you know, I did... Um, I, Maggie, you and I, we were able to see um, the teaser for the film because the film is... It's actually um, still in post-production. Um, and, yeah, I was... To be honest, I was getting emotional <laughs> watching it. Um, oh, yay! Um, and I think... Uh, I, when we were, I, Maggie, I don't think you were... Looking, I was like, "Should I go to the bathroom right now?" Because I don't want to cry. And well, uh, you've seen me cry before, but um, uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I guess I wasn't expecting it, but I, I did feel very emotional watching it. And I think um, seeing um, you know, especially mixed race children, like young young kids, talk about their experiences. Um, in, in you know all different kinds of experiences good and bad all together and I think um, I felt like wow I can't believe this this film doesn't exist yet and I'm really excited to see see where it goes and I really wanted to um, get the chance to talk to to Lena more about the experience of making the film um, yeah so that's sort of where my interest comes from um, but yeah Maggie what tell, tell me a little bit about what, what you're excited to hear about today um, well in addition to sort of just the fact that we uh,
2: you know, don't have enough conversations about race, um, and I think this can be a great one. Um, the fact that the, these two mother filmmaker co-directors have really spoken in this one um, TED video that I saw about the vulnerability involved in this making this film and actually in having these conversations around race, I'd love to hear about that journey. Um, and what they learned along the way and sort of think about how does vulnerability relate to, to what it means to be a feminist filmmaker and not having all of the answers when you start. Um, because with this topic uh, and so many others, um, how do we use our practice to, to basically enable more people to have the conversation, mm-hmm. right? That's a lot of what documentary practice is about. And so I'm really excited to hear about um, you know, Lena's personal journey um, what she's learned and, and about the conversations that she
1: had. Yeah, so let's um, introduce Lena. So um, I'll read her bio here. Lena Jesswell is a documentary filmmaker, award-winning photographer, and professor at American University, where she's the director of the photography concentration and the school's inclusion officer. Her photography and film work often deals with the intersections of being Indian and American. This work has been nationally recognized in galleries around the country, including solo shows at the Gandhi Memorial Center and International Visions Gallery. Her award-winning films, including Crossing Lines, have been screened in various film festivals around the country, broadcast on PBS, and distributed through New Day Films. Her latest film, Mixed, as we mentioned, is a collaboration with Professor Katie Borm Tattoo and Yeah, we already gave the long log line on that. And we'll, we'll of course, get more into the film. But I also wanted to mention that Lena is also working with Monica Bowes, who was uh, another guest on our show recently. Um, And they're working on the feature, a feature documentary together about climate change called Rising Up to Climate Change Storytelling with Saris. So
0: welcome, Lena, to the show. Thank you both for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
2: Well, let's start by asking you just a little bit about yourself and kind of what your journey into being um, this successful and acclaimed
0: filmmaker has been like. How did you start doing this work? Sure. So um, I knew I wanted to be a photographer when I was in third grade, and it kind of came at the same point as my family um, moving to America and i was using the camera kind of i would you know and shoot camera and i would hide behind it but it would allow me to interact in events as well so i was kind of learning american culture being one step forward in it and then one step behind and removed and i don't think i actually recognized obviously until later that that was sort of a documentary practice of you know using the camera to be some part of it but hiding behind it at the same time. And so it allowed me to, to gain access into what quote-unquote American culture was like. Um, and I had, unlike uh, a lot of folks, I had parents who were extremely supportive of me going into the arts and bought me my first real camera when I was 16. And uh, when I said I'm going to go study photography, they were like, go for it, you know. So, wow. um Def, definitely not... Not the, to be taken for granted. <laughs> not to be taken for granted and not the typical parents of, of immigrants, mm. um, especially Indian immigrants who came in the 70s and 80s. You know? uh, and so when I got to school, I was like, photography, 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 that was it. And uh, I didn't think about ever becoming a filmmaker until I went to grad school. And then when I went, I went to grad school for photography and I started to think about my thesis project and I ended up doing a thesis on arranged marriages and it had to be, I needed the audio, I needed you know, movement, I needed mm-hmm. something beyond just the still and uh, then I started to, to learn filmmaking and I had taken a couple classes as undergrad, but I hated it and then I was like, this is what I need to learn and this is what I need to do and, and thus started my journey as becoming a filmmaker. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little
2: bit more about growing up as uh, an immigrant child in, I think you said Ohio, you had
0: an interesting story about a story being written. Sure. You know, so one of the, my earliest memories of actually being there was, um, so telling about what we remember and how these tend to be sometimes traumatic moments, you know, um, shape and form you even when you're that young. So my father, uh, we were the first immigrant family to move to the small town in, in Ohio, Medina, Ohio, pretty small conservative town. And I, there was a big article featured about him. He was a doctor. He was opening up his practice and there was a photograph of my family all sitting on our couch in the apartment or the house that we were living in. And it got published in the Medina Gazette and uh, shortly after that, I was walking home from school and a kid yelled out the bus window, where's your green card? And I was like, at home with my mom, where's yours? Like, had <laughs> no idea that that was what that, you know, was coded and what that meant mm. until later. And I just assumed that everybody had a green card and everybody, <laughs> you know, what what does that actually mean? And, um, but I think it's those kinds of moments that you actually start to think about later and you're like, well, what does that actually mean? And mm. where am I? And so I think those sort of things, like the fact that I remembered that and keep remembering it is uh, is, I think vital to who I became on my journey. How old were you um, when you immigrated? So I was probably eight, six or seven, seven or eight-ish before we moved into that small town in Ohio. So we lived in England, we lived in Canada, and then we lived in. Um, then we moved to the United States. Okay, yeah. so
1: we actually have a pretty similar story then. Um, I also immigrated to the U.S. when I was eight, and wow. um, we lived, well, actually, I was born in Korea, moved to England, then moved back to Korea, wow. and then moved here. But yeah, I think it's, a, it's definitely an... A, an, a funny age, right? I mean, sure. obviously it's not as bad as middle school no. <laughs> to immigrate, but I think all those, you know, it's definitely an age where you have very clear memories.
0: Absolutely. Of
1: what it was like to be in other places. Yes. Um, and I think, yeah, I definitely, you know, remember some of those. Um, I, I definitely, I don't think I ex- thought that other kids had, had green cards per se, or like it wasn't an expectation, but um, for sure, like those, those memories of moving to the U S for the first time. Um, and I think actually one of my clearest memories is going to Costco for the first time. Mm. I was, I was like, Whoa, this is America. (laughs) Everything was so huge. I just felt like everything was magnified. Um, but yeah. And where, where I grew up, um, I, I don't think there were really any other mixed kids Mm. at all. And, um, there actually weren't even that many Asian American kids. The only Asian American kids, um, this was out on Long Island, were um, you, you know somehow related to the university because okay. you know um, so that the university brings in diversity, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. And when otherwise it's quite um, white, and, and Long Island is quite segregated. Um, but yeah, I think I think yeah that I, I can imagine that must have shaped quite a bit of your experience. Um, uh, but also, I think it 's really exciting that your parents were so supportive of of you taking up photography and doing that
0: yeah they you know I always um, when I get students who come to me and they don 't do it as much as they used to or earlier, you know saying well i 'd love to major in filmmaking or but my parents won 't let me, so I can study communications, but i can 't really become like I, I want to be a filmmaker, but i can 't or I want to be a photographer, but my parents don 't think that 's a a good enough degree. To, to come into, and I'm seeing that shifting more and more away from that, and you know students are allowed to do that, but I, I guess i I often take for granted the fact that my parents said, as long as you study, we don't care what it is, you know, as long as you go to college and and you know they came here to give us advantages that they didn't have, and they wanted to make sure that we were passionate about what we wanted to do and follow up with it. so I take that for granted, but they're they're really like you know sort of lead, they led the model for so many along the way in their, in their community.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Um, before we get into the film more, I, I also, you know, we read in your bio that you're also a professor. And, um, I know that, you know, I was talking to Maggie earlier, I was like, uh, in the bio or, um, online, it says that, that you're a full professor and that's not to be taken for granted, right? And I think, you know, for those of us in academia, I mean, I'm only a PhD student, but I know that there's not that many women of color who who make it that far. And so I I wanted to hear a little bit more about what that experience has been like for you to get so far in the academy where, like the film industry, (laughs) you
0: know, it's kind of
1: the same people usually, old white
0: dudes. Absolutely. Um, So I was the first person of color to become a full professor in our school of communication, um, and that that was pretty, and I'd say youngest too. Just want to throw that in. Um, um. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, but that's again with tremendous amount of support from uh, from all of the right folks. You know, from um, deans along the way who have made sure that I've succeeded um, in getting tenure first, and then and then other deans. I had a, this incredible. We have an incredible dean who. Um, who sat me down and said, you know, we need more women at the full professor ranking and you you've been tenured for a while. So I think you're ready to do this. And I was like, really? And she like this woman (laughs) writes like a book a week. You know, I mean, she's incredible. She's just and I was like, if Laura is saying that I'm ready to do this, then I think I might be ready to do this. And I gave her a list of things that I had done post-tenure, and she was like, we can fast-track you. You can go up this year. And I was like, nope, 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 nope. I'm not ready for this. But um, I said, I'll, I'll do it next year for sure. So I think having just a supportive community, um, my current dean is absolutely, absolutely encouraging of, of everything that I do, um, incredibly supportive, uh, and having a, a great community. I, I run my photo program, and um, my students are just Absolutely. You know, they're the best students to have and they thrive off of we thrive off of each other. And we have created a community that I feel like is is something unique on campus. And that to me is like part of the reasons why I wanted to continue to be, you know, more visible and vibrant and and that other students have role models, like especially women of color, that they have role models on on every level of the way of doing it and not, um, and not just being sort of like, look, I'm, I'm still doing work, I'm still doing research, my research, I'm still very active in my field. I don't wanna just sit back and be like, okay, now I'm a full, full professor, I don't need to do anything anymore, I can just rest. But I think it's really important to model um, behavior that I didn't get to see mm-hmm. when I never had, uh, a pro- I had one professor of color, a woman professor of color my entire college career. Um, wow. So I think it's really important for for me to be visible within the community and for others to see, and to, to for them to realize that they can, you know, they can. These are things that they can easily do, maybe easily, but they can do.
1: Yeah, I, I noticed um, you're also, you know, as we mentioned in the bio, that you are the inclusion officer yes. for the school, and um, you know some of the things that you're you've mentioned like. Uh, how important it is to see role models, people that look like you, right, in positions of power or having the jobs that you want. I mean, that the same could definitely be said for filmmaking. Absolutely. And I wonder um, if maybe you'd want to share some thoughts about some of the things you've learned, uh, the wisdom you might have as an inclusion officer in the university context, what are some of those lessons that you think might be relevant for the filmmaking industry?
0: Sure. I think, you know, one of the things that um, people didn't realize, I don't think people still realize is like the numbers. If we just look at raw data and look at the numbers of professors that are uh, women of color, that we look at... women filmmakers that are women of color, you know, I mean, we break these things down and as soon as we start to look at the numbers, they don't look so great. Right. And then it it tells us that we have work to do and this is, this is how we need to come up with a a plan of doing it. And so I really like the title inclusion instead of diversity because diversity is just who we are and inclusion is the actual work that goes Mm. into becoming um, a, a more inclusive environment. And um, when I say that, sometimes in- inclusion means exclusion, you know, and so sometimes we're excluding people from the conversation, and I think that's perfectly okay. Um, people should know when their power and their privilege needs to, they need to take a seat back and allow others to rise. And so those are kinds of things that I'm working on in both filmmaking and also in in the um, academic world.
2: So I think this could be a good segue kind of talking about um, who's represented and how they represented the fact that you only had one professor who was a woman of color and you have made this conscious decision um, to to explore the intersections of being Indian and American mm-hmm. in your film work and in this latest project you're exploring your own family mm-hmm. um, and your the identity and, and the politics and the experience of that. Can you talk a little bit about the journey of how you decided to sort of explore
0: identity and and get to the point where you are today working on this project? Sure. So Identity has been a, you know, I, I find, I, I say that my work is autobiographical, even if it's not stories about me um, uh, directly. It's me working through something. It's like my therapy. And so whenever a project I take on, it's, a, it's something that's longing behind me that I need to figure out how to be. And so with one of my films, Crossing Lines, it was uh, co-produced and co-directed directed by uh, um, the person who starred in the film, Indra Samani. And we were looking at how does one keep culture when she it's her journey back to India after her father's death and her father was really the person who um, was her connector to, to culture. And at that time I was also thinking like, how do I I come to India every six months to do some work, but I'm not really like, how do I keep one foot there and one foot here? And so that project really helped to kind of define that. Um, And so all of this work that I do is somehow me working out through some kind of process in my head And uh, when when I bought a house, I did a project on eminent domain. I mean, like you know, it doesn't necessarily have to always be um, identity based, but it is somehow related to something that's happening in my life. And uh, and so then when motherhood came, I didn't like I wasn't actually prepared for how much those stories would start to come out uh, because I just I wasn't expecting it. And I had done a little interactive piece about a one minute piece called "I'm Not the Nanny." and uh it was about my experiences with my son Uh, my son is pale-skinned but dark-haired and my husband is blonde and blue-eyed and uh he looks very much like my husband minus the dark hair and we would go when he and i would be by ourselves we'd go playing in the park people would come up and ask me like oh you're so good with him who do you work for and you know dc in particular the nannies are all women of color and the kids may not be theirs you know and so people just assumed I was his nanny and I was like what the first time it happened because it happened multiple times it's like oh um I work for American University you know I didn't I actually didn't like connect the two until <laughs> later it was like I'm a professor you know and uh and then I was like oh this is so coded with race and gender and everything you know mm. and so I did this little piece about uh, about that and then also just being with my the fact that my son is um biracial you know also thinking about how some members not all of the indian community also you know behind our backs would say things of like oh she couldn't possibly be connected to her culture cuz she married a white guy and you know so mm. you're like sort of um betraying one culture in i mean you know it's i don't think that way but that's what was you know pressed upon me um, there, so I did this this piece um, called i'm not the Nanny and then um, my colleague uh, and friend, um, Katie Boram Chateau, who is the director of the Center for Media and Social Impact at American and she's a professor there um, she she heard about the piece and she came running up to me and had a picture of her kids and was like, "These are my kids, and I now know that I said the very wrong thing of they don't look like you and she's like I know and uh, <laughs> and we immediately sort of like laughed and bonded and then started to talk really about um, she has a history and a background in making documentaries as well and um, and she's just an incredible person and partner and uh, uh, I think everybody should know about her and learn about her she's she's awesome and we sat and talked and said let's make this film together and she very clearly said, I've been wanting to make a documentary, but as a white woman, I couldn't make this by myself. And the fact that she said that in our first, one of our first meetings, I was like, this is somebody I want to work with Mm. because she recognizes her power and privilege and, um, and gets it. And, um, again, this is all happening. These conversations were happening prior to diversity and inclusion being like big topics that everybody needed to be a part of. And so, so she really, you know, her lived experience told her those kinds of things. And then we just started to brainstorm and start to work on the project on Mixed. Yeah,
1: yeah so let's um, let's dig in a little bit um, with Mixed. Um, actually, wait, I, I want to rewind just a little bit because. Sure. Um, yeah, when you share that story about um, when you share that story about the the I'm not the nanny installation, I think. Well, it made me think of two things. One, obviously, my own family's experience, but also the BBC viral video that went around. Oh, yes. And um, and for those of our listeners who may not have heard about this, although I think most of you probably have, right? There was like there was a a white scholar of Korean studies who was being featured on the BBC Live, and of course, his adorable children. Oh, I loved the like, Little. Yeah, round thing. Yeah, it was was the cutest little thing, like just rolled up into the corner. And of course, it was super embarrassing. It's it's on the one hand, like an academic's worst nightmare because you're like trying to be professional, although you're probably wearing your your boxers or your PJs like underneath or whatever, which is pretty much the only thing that can justify the way (laughs) he behaved in that situation. But, you know, there was a huge like online debate about it, of course, because people assumed the woman in the The corner was the nanny, right? And at first I was like, to me, I saw the video and it was so clear to me. That was a mom. That she was was desperately trying to get her
0: kid out of the shot. And that, you know, the horrified look of that, like being, you know, that was a mom. I've been there. That's a mom look. That's total mom look. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah I mean to me that like it, it reminded me of my parents so much, um, and I think uh also like you know some of my earliest memories growing up, I think were you know going to say like the supermarket, that was like probably the most traumatic place for mm-hmm. me because like my mom, who um you know is from Korea and you know, she she lived in a bunch of other places, but she lived in Korea until she was eighteen has a very different sense of personal space than I think mm-hmm. most Americans do. So she'll like creep up on the line and I'd be like, mom, you need to like not be so yeah. close to other yeah. people. Yeah. But like, she'll do that. So that, that's one thing. But then also like, I would always feel like I really needed to be close to her so that, you know, because people behind the counter would assume that we're not together. Exactly. And I think this was like a very common refrain for us because similar, you know, to what you shared about your own experience um, is that people assume that my mom is not my mom because, you know, I look more white mm-hmm. than Asian. And I think, or to, to to some people, I think some people who are actually more familiar with mixed race kids, they'll know. Yeah, they'll know. And I think it, it actually is really interesting kind of like anthropologically, like you, you know about someone's background and experience based on the racial assumptions that they make.
0: So here's the thing with that video, why so many people assumed that she was the nanny is because there's no visib—there's not a whole lot of visibility for mixed-race families or people, right? And so if that was part of our zeitgeist, if that was part of who we were, then we wouldn't be jumping to those conclusions that she was the help. We would actually mm. be thinking that she's the mom. But because we haven't seen that, we're not modeling any of that, we don't see that in, an, I mean, it's starting to change. But I think about the Cheerios ad um, that was in 2013 with the the biracial daughter, you know, reading that uh, Cheerios helps the heart. And she pours the whole box of Cheerios on her sleeping dad who's black and her mom is white and how that ad went viral and and that YouTube had to General Mills had to turn off the comments because they were so nasty and, you know, like uh, disturbing about uh, what mixed race families are. So we're now starting to see a shift of things happening but it's it's the reason why most people thought like I said again that she was the that she was the nanny was because we just don't see enough of those kinds of family portrayals on television in the news you know et cetera et cetera.
1: Yeah and I think to me it's because I didn't grow up around that you know other multiracial families, I think I kind of assumed that like, I was like some kind of unicorn or yeah, something. Yeah. But, you know, I, I noticed that um, the statistic that I would not have known, if not for your film, that by 2050, yeah. majority of American kids will be mixed race. Mm-hmm. That is actually, that was a total surprise to me. Yeah. 2030,
0: I believe. I think I think it's 2030. Yeah. So even closer. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And yet the representation that's out there is
2: pretty... Absent. I think yeah. also I saw something around how maybe it's like these romantic, exotic, sexy relationships, but not families no. and communities.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, we look at um, the Shonda Rhimes television programs, like she's always featuring like black and white mixed race uh, couples, but it's always about sex and that kind of thing. It's not actually about family. We start to, we have modern families. We see, uh, we're seeing again like more and more of these um, portrayals happening. Um, there's a show that I name I can't remember, but there's an Indian woman married to a white guy. She's a comedian. That's happening now, and so we're starting to see more and more of these kinds of shows, um, which will hopefully change that. Oh, Mindy that. Kaling? No, um, it's a current show, oh, okay. like a current show that's on, and I can't remember. On NBC, but that's oh, all I okay. got. That's all I got. Um, from <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. not that many. No, there isn't and that many. And in fact, when there
1: are, like, there's a there's a new Netflix show, "All the Boys I've Loved Before." Oh yeah, I haven't seen um, it yet. And but. there's there's a couple of other things that are like actually about mixed race families. But the casting is always curious to me because, like, "All the Boys I've Loved Before," for example, they actually cast. Uh, an Asian American woman to play a mixed race person and you see kind of um, you see you see that although the the sisters you know were multiracial and you see things like even crazy rich Asians right where there was a whole thing that blew up because You know, the main guy that was cast is multiracial. Oh, I
0: didn't know that. Yeah, Yeah. he
1: is. And so, and I think that that's, it's not uncommon that that actually quite, and so there's kind of complaints on both sides. So it gets quite sensitive in terms of, um, you know, in some some Asian countries, like in Southeast Asia, you know, I lived and worked in Thailand for a while. Multiracial actors are actually very visible. Yes. But just because they're visible doesn't mean it isn't fucked up.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, like, (laughs) let's think about the legacy of what mixed race means in the United States, and we recognize that as we talk about this in the documentary, you know, it's a legacy of slavery, so we don't, we don't shy around that. We know that this is not just, this is not by choice by some, you know, clearly it was by rape and, you know, all of these sorts of things, so the legacy itself, and at least in America, is supremely messy and complicated. And so we, when we talk to people and, and um, kids in particular and ask them how they identify, you know, some some that are uh, black and white mixed will say, I identify as black because that's the way the world sees me. And they absolutely have every right to, to do that. And we're not here to say, no, you can't, you have to identify as mixed. But there are there are a group of people who are pretty vocal in saying that, I, you know, I, this is my identity. I share it as a mixed race person. Um, but but it's so highly complicated and we discovered through this process that we don't get to tell people how they get to identify you know that's Mm. their own choice how they and you might have family members that are related to each other brothers and sisters sisters and sisters that identify differently and that's totally okay yeah yeah well I think this is a good uh, point in the
2: conversation to take a quick break you're listening to bad feminist making films on full-service radio So welcome back to Bad Feminist Making Films, a podcast presented by Ethnocene and Risa Collectives on full-service radio. Um, and we're here speaking with Lena Jaiswal about her new project, Mixed, um, and sort of the, the dynamics around representation of mixed-race people in the United States um, and globally. Um, so, Lena, I, I want to hear more about kind of the journey, you know, of deciding to do this film. You talked about the the conversation that you and your co-director um, have had in the partnership. And I know that as this evolved, kind of your vision for this film and maybe who and how and all of this evolved as it does. Um, and eventually you included yourselves in the film. And, and I think we live in a culture where some of us are very comfortable talking about race. We maybe live it and breathe it. But the conversation at large is not, uh, definitely not where it needs to be. And it's a topic that a lot of people, um, especially white people, (laughs) unfortunately, uh, shy away from. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, kind of the process of bringing yourself into this project, um, and and how it's
0: evolved for you? Sure. So when we started, we were doing this as a sort of a traditional doc sense, where we would be behind the camera asking questions and you wouldn't see us you would maybe hear us but we weren't miked or anything like that and about a year into it um so both katie and i are professors so we're full-time doing that and then we're working on a hundred other projects ourselves so this get this project has been done over summers and over like you know breaks and things like that so it's it's taken a long time in maybe documentary senses but it's because we both have other full-time jobs and tremendous other commitments to the or other artistic practices and in Katie's sense um, she runs a center and she's writing two books so the process has uh, taken a little bit longer than than maybe if we were just documentary filmmakers so during the f- first year we were shooting these kinds of interviews and everybody that we met that we we deeply respected and cared about like why are you making this film like well because you know our kids are mixed and and they're like then why aren't you in it and we're like because that's not who we are, you know, like we kind of went a little bit like, no, that's not what we're, you know, we don't want to be the focus of it, but kept on coming back and come, on, kept on coming back to the, the sense of like, if we make this film and people don't know why we're invested in it, then we are being exploitative of um, what, it, what the subjects and the people that we're interviewing, the, the mixed race people, and it didn't feel authentic, and so we talked about it and we both came to the conclusion at the same time, which is why this film has been such a great joy to work on. We we're just like, yeah, we got to be in this film. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we sort of went kicking and screaming because we didn't want it to be about us. But then we were like, well, what is it? Why are we doing this film? The reasons why we're doing this film is to really understand like how to be better parents to our kids, to talk about race in ways that um, makes them feel welcoming and not having to have issues with identity. Not that every multiracial or biracial person does, but um, just to figure out what the conversations look like. I mean, none of it. I only have one child. And so in our in my family, we none of us share the same racial breakdown. And what does that mean? And how do we come up? And, and and then in my case, we also have cultural differences. And so, how do we handle those kinds of conflicts when they come up? And if they come up, and how do we make sure that my my son feels like he's got a really self-aware identity that he feels good about in in all aspects? And um, Casey, uh, Katie, sorry, Katie has two kids, so they they at least share the same racial makeup, but. You know, so we started to to, to really think about it. It was like, what is it that we want out of this film? If we're just doing stories about what it means to be mixed race, there's no connection to it. And so we realized that we had to insert ourselves and our families. And that's where the vulnerability part that you spoke about um, came came up. And and it became a little bit of a challenge, right? Because how much do we want to put our kids up on screen when they say something like our opening teaser, I'm interviewing my son and asking him what, Skin color, y you know what skin color is, and he's eating spaghetti and sloppy and messy, and you know that's great for a, I think he was in five uh, five or six years old at that time. But when he's in high school and this film is still being shown or screened, like how's he gonna feel about that? And so we're trying to be really you know conscious, and that's just a silly like I've got spaghetti on my face thing, and not like here it is what I'm talking about and what I'm you know the the things that I'm. Um, saying and that how how much that changes for for kids. And so we're really trying to still be protective of them and letting us be the vulnerable ones. Um because we've chose to do this and they've sort of chosen to do it but not really, right? Like how much agency does a 9-year-old have over saying saying yes, I want to be on camera. So we're really cognizant about trying to protect them and like show them in like scenes but not having them be the focus of the stories and instead it's the focus is on the people who can actually say yes and give give permission and that's Katie and I. So what has that conversation
2: been like you know as you and Katie have been working on this film like in your logline or your synopsis you know it's a brown woman and a white woman and you're on this journey to learn about race and and how has it um, influence the way that you are interacting with your son and sort of the practices, you know, n- not only as a filmmaker, but also as a parent in and, and this collaboration as a co-director?
0: Sure. So one of the things that, um, that I felt was my role in this film, and I still feel is my role in this film, is to ensure that mixed race stories are not relegated to just being black and white. And when we talk about race in America, it is it is a black and white issue. And often that leaves everybody else uh, outside of the table. And for us, I think both Katie and I, we we think this is an issue for every single person. Like if you're white, you're green, you're blue, whatever you are, you should be talking about race. You should all be invested in in race. It should be everybody all the time. You know, Um, and So, this is where I think Katie is probably a little bit more vulnerable because she's the white woman. Like, I've had a lived experience where I've had to talk about race all my life. You know, um, my father said to us when we were very young, he's like, I have two older sisters, he said, You girls are gonna have to work twice as hard as anybody else because you're Indian and you're women. You know, so I've grown up with these conversations as part of our daily, you know, interactions and stuff where for Katie, she hasn't had to think about race, you know, until she got married until, well, probably when she started dating her husband. And then when they certainly, when they had kids um, and she's one of the ones who's extremely thoughtful about this kind of stuff. So that's why we, we thought this, you know, she's going to probably end up being more vulnerable on screen because I've had a, a lifelong history of thinking and responding and, and, hers is a little her journey is a little different Um, but ultimately we think that's a really good thing because um, we will be vulnerable on screen we're going to make a lot of mistakes we're going to say like I just told you that story of when she showed me her kids and I was like they don't look like you I mean we're going to make those mistakes and we hope that our viewers will understand like when you're on a journey thinking about race you're going to make mistakes and it's okay and as long as you're still continuing that journey not to just stop so we hope that 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 will come across in the film as part of the vulnerability there's so much uh, vulnerability involved
2: in not only uh telling your story but telling any story and making mistakes is something yeah. i am
0: still working hard yeah. to embrace at times yeah. yeah well that's where the learning happens right like when as soon as you make a mistake that's where you're gonna like conversation starts and that's when you can say oh okay i didn't i didn't think about it from that perspective and let me let me continue to learn a little bit more about this and let me change my own pov because now i've learned like hey that's kind of offensive you said this or uh, that's you're excluding something from the conversation and we're all guilty of it. I mean, every single one of us, and even in my role as inclusion officer, I'm like, look, I studied photography. You know, I did not study this stuff as a background. That's not my background. I am gonna make mistakes, but let's work on it together and recognize it. And if we can be vulnerable, then hopefully others will be too. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and that makes me think of, um, there's a sociologist, uh, Robin D'Angelo, who I think recently published this book on white fragility. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I've read some of the uh, articles that she's written before. She's a white, white woman yeah. sociologist, but now the book has finally come out and, you know, she's been going on tour. And I, I um, listened to some of the talks that she did um, and she works very closely with a co-facilitator, a black woman, who, and they sort of have these conversations in, you know, sometimes mixed race settings. Etc. And I think there's so much about white fragility that is deeply ingrained, uh, not only in white, in terms of white people's experiences, but also the way it affects people of color and the way that we're used to sort of socializing and the way it's okay to respond and sort of protect white fragility in those situations. So I think, um, and that gets sort of, you know, um, layered on with all different kinds of cultural differences. And I think, you know, for example, like as a as an asian american, you know, immigrant, i feel like i've been socialized to sort of keep the peace yes. and maybe not absolutely speak up in these situations, mm-hmm. but i think especially, you know, uh, recently with, you know, since the trump administration and so many of these attacks against immigrant communities, i feel like, you know, it's important for me to find ways to Address when those situations come up. How do you? It it is a a, a case of vulnerability, Mm -hmm. or there are moments of vulnerability. It would be easier to step back and not say anything, but I think um, I'm I'm trying to really work through ways of how to, you know, push beyond my discomfort because actually discomfort is really critical. It's like sort of the key. Thing that is going to allow people, you know, white folks, but really everyone, to move the conversation on race. So our ability to talk about it, and you know, especially as someone who's half white, I think, um, un- understanding my relative privilege in these situations where, yes, I'm an immigrant, but I'm also I'm documented. I have all these other privileges. What is it that I can do and say to to shift these conversations? Um, so I-, I love your concept of. You know, you mentioned earlier in in terms of your films generally that you approach them uh, uh, through this lens of working through something, right? You don't have a final, you know, final full conclusion, right, before you start the film. And I think um, that's actually not not something that I've heard a lot from, from filmmakers. I think, of course, we all learn along the way, but the idea that, you know, you're really coming to it with, you specifically are choosing a topic because... It can be this process that um, helps us understand something more deeply, and and more more than likely change the way we think about something. And I think this topic in particular is so complex because you know the two of you as directors, you mention how there's a deep cultural ambivalence about mixed race uh, folks in our society, in, in the U.S. especially, because on the one hand. They're considered exotic, beautiful, they're fetishized. But on the other hand, there are these moments like the serial mm-hmm. um, ad that you talked about where people respond with like a shocking degree of disgust mm-hmm. and, and these kinds of racist comments. So um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how do you, uh, you know, address such a sensitive topic, right, that gets at these complexities, the sort of dark side and also, but the joys, right? And, and the other side of, of what it's like to be mixed race in America.
0: Sure, throughout the film, we are interviewing lots of different types of people. And so we have, um, we interview psychologists, we interview like pop cultural folks, you know, and we interview all of the sort of people that are leading what it means to be mixed race in America, um, authors, et cetera, et cetera. But the most exciting part is that we're talking to actually a lot of families and mixed race people themselves. Like we can't speak for them, right? That's not, I can't speak for what it means, what it feels like for my son to be mixed race. I can't speak to that. I can only speak as his mom on the other, on one part of that equation. So we try really hard to give people their own voice um, through the film by our conversations. And it's very informal setting. Like we'll just have a conversation with with folks And that's where we think that we get to, that's where we learn like, oh, okay. So we met a group of people that we love. They're young people that just graduated Spelman College called the Blasian Narratives. And we learned so much about them. They're half black and half Asian. And we wanted to make sure that their voices were included because when, again, when we always think about mixed race, it's always like a white component to it. But so how does that conversation shift when there is no whiteness attached to it? And so we really were very cognizant in all the folks that we interviewed and the people that we talked to and the people that will come out across on the screen of um, making sure that their voices were the stronger voices and our voices were the questioning, like, how do we get from here to here? Like, what part of this is a learning process for us? But we really wanted to be as authentic as possible.
1: I love that. And I think um, it's absolutely true because when you when your community is so underrepresented in media it's like actually higher expectations when you're finally seeing your when you think you might be represented in mm-hmm. something right and then you're you see the film like one of one of my biracial students i remember she saw a film about colorism in the black community and she actually was really upset after the film because she felt like her experience was not captured yeah right? I think many times this happens in media which is like you know because you haven't seen yourself it's so important to to find that space where you do see yourself so I, I really appreciate this attention to sort of the intersectionality yes. of different perspectives within multiracial communities unfortunately uh, you know I'm being told that we're we're, at, we're running out of time for today um, but thank you so much Lena thank for you sharing both for
0: having me really appreciate it.
1: Absolutely, and we're super excited, um, and I'm sure we'll be talking more about your film when it finally comes out. Yes, and other projects. Um, and um, if our
2: listeners know of other amazing women and filmmakers, uh, men or women, actually, um, anyone who is doing a project or you have an idea for a topic that needs to be covered on this podcast, please let us know. We would love to um, have your recommendations and to really uh, continue to broaden this conversation
1: um, and support each other in our journeys. So, And the best way to find us, actually, is on our Facebook page, Bad Feminists Making Films, and you can contact us through there.
2: Yep. Um, so you've been listening to another episode of Bad Feminist Making Films on Full Service Radio. See you next time.